Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1959 John Wayne Howard Hawks film Rio Bravo. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Good morning. Barrett, I was um, really interested in watching this film because I loved High Noon so much. And so much when you read about High Noon is hearing about Wayne and Hawks not liking High Noon. And that I love the idea that they went out and made a Western that they say ex, uh, explicitly as a response to to High Noon. So this is going to be I saw this is going to be fun to talk about. I'm excited to to think about these two things in conversation. Before we get to that, what is your history with this film? Uh, this is a film that uh, I have wanted to see for a long time, but this is actually the first time I, I I've seen it. I've got a pretty deep history with Howard Hawks, but this was one of his films I had not seen, knew it by reputation for years and years and just never got around to watching it. So this gave me the excuse to actually uh, look at it. Uh, so does this, we, we watch one other Hawks films, right? Um, bringing up baby is Howard Hawks. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this fit into his larger body of work? Okay. That's, that's a great question, Sam, because one of the things that, um, I think one needs to recognize about Hawks is that he was really kind of the master of many genres. Um, he made films in about seven different genres, some of them multiple films in the same genre. So he got his start in the, in the twenties in silence. Um, as you mentioned, um, bringing up baby in 1938 was his first screwball. Um, but he's also known for the gangster film. He made Scarface great film. Noir, the big sleep. Um, his only Oscar nomination was for the war film, Sergeant York, that got Gary Cooper the Oscar. Uh, he made three Westerns. In addition to this one, he made Red River, also with John Wayne, uh, as well as The Big Sky. He made, uh, this is actually a disputed film. He made a seminal sci-fi film, The Thing, uh, which was remade by John Carpenter. Uh, disputed because there's argument about who actually directed the film. And uh, we could talk about that some other time. Uh, and then he made a historical epic called Land of the Pharaohs uh, set in ancient Egypt. And that was the film that really kind of uh, set him back. It was his first box office flop in 1955. And so Rio Bravo is a kind of um, comeback film for him as a result. But I also want to say that I think that Howard Hawks, when I think about Howard Hawks, I think about the screwballs and the comedies. So Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Ball of Fire, I Was a Male War Bride, Monkey Business, uh, four of those with Cary Grant and one with Gary Cooper. I, I think the Hawks is fundamentally a director of comedies. And I had made an argument with a friend of mine who also is into classic Hollywood films that Rio Bravo is a comedy that happens to be a Western. Uh, just as we talked about High Noon being kind of a moral drama, ethical drama that happens to be a Western. I think Hawks's um, sensibility is fundamentally comic, and he's especially interested in the uh, in his version of the war between the sexes, which plays out in this film as chance and, and feathers. That's interesting because the the thing that I thought of as I was watching this movie, and it, it is along the lines of a comedy because it reminds me of a comic version of this, is how much this actually fits most of the beats of a sports movie, (laughs) you know, because it, I mean, you do have this like cast of kind of ragtag characters with, with Wayne at the center of it. Um, And, 
And like you could easily take Rio Bravo and turn it into a, a movie about a baseball team or a football. Like it, it, you could do that. It, it actually kind of works. Um, so, so I didn't think of it like like a comedy, but I thought of it like a sports comedy. So I guess yes, that actually there are there are some of the structural pieces of it, some of the way it thinks about the characters um, that I think that actually uh, I was thinking along those exact same lines. Well, I, I actually, um, I, I think I probably irritated my, my good friend with this argument, but I actually tried to argue that it's a comedy of humors. Um, and for those who don't know what that means, um, this, this goes back, well, the notion of the humors goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, that is that we have various fu- humors for fluids in our body that determine our basic temperament. Uh, and then the notion of a comedy of humors is really the premise of a sitcom, which is you take people that have certain characteristics and you put them in situations and you watch how those basic characteristics cause them to react to each other. Uh, so think about I Love Lucy, for example, and, right. and, and the way, you know, Lucy and Ricky are, are, are always playing off against each other. Or think about the mix in something like Seinfeld or Friends, right? I mean, those are basically humor comedies because you know that if, if Ross does this, then, then somebody else is going gonna, is gonna to do that. So in, in, in this film, and, I, and I'm about 75% serious in this argument. Uh, in, in this film, you know, John Wayne is playing the John Wayne type. Uh, dude is playing a dude is, is playing the drunk type. Walter Brennan, he's an easy one to see as a type. He's playing the Walter Brennan type. And that's the other thing. They're all sort of been around, those two have been around Hollywood long enough that, that they're also kind of self-referential performances. Like I, I see in Wayne's performance, I definitely see the roots of Rooster Cogmer. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is John Wayne playing the John Wayne role by this point in his career. Same thing for Walter Brennan. Uh, every time when Brennan went on the set, the question always was teeth in or teeth out. Um, and as you can see, he plays stumpy with the teeth out. Uh, you know, dude is a, is, is the drunk who reforms himself. I mean, that's a, that's a trope. Uh, and then feathers is, you know, she's begins looking like the whore with the heart of gold, uh, but turns out to be the virtuous girl. So I, I, I think I, I think Cox is playing with a lot of different character types. And to me, that it's a little bit different from the classic Western. And one way I think about it is, can you imagine um, Henry Fonda's Wyatt Earp in this town? And I think you can't. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine John Chance in Tombstone. Now, it doesn't mean that every, you know, I mean, that's that's maybe a screwy argument, but it's the way I think about how this is a very, at least a very different kind of Western from what is happening in something like my darling Clementine or high noon. Absolutely. No, I, I was thinking the exact same thing. How, as I was writing notes out, I was kind of describing the characters and this is why it, why I thought of a sports movies because sports movies and war movies often have like kind of archetypal characters, you know, and, and, um, and and it just felt as I was describing them, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just like this. Everybody is such a such a specific type that you could, if we thought long enough, we could point to another film and be like, oh, this person is the analog for this person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and and that that actually works. I think that that works really well. Now, um, one of the things that won me over to this movie, and this is kind of how I'm going to approach this when we dive into the film, is. Uh, I, so I watched this twice this weekend. The first time, um, again, I, I, I have always have my guard up against Westerns. And, um, and I, so I was a little bit like, I don't know if I'm going to like this, especially like I really liked High Noon. So I thought, well, am I going to like this? 
Um, the second time I watched it, I had read about the film. And, and this is what bothers me is that I, I have great respect for the person who made this comment. So my fear is that I changed my view because of who said this. But I was reading about Quentin Tarantino's love for for Rio Bravo. And mm-hmm. his take was that it's his favorite hangout film that it like there is this plot. But a lot of this is about getting and this. This goes to mm-hmm. your point about these character types. It's like there's a lot of moments between the action where it's like, okay, we're back at the jail. And this time we have dude and stumpy and we're watching them interact. And, and, and a lot of this movie is just, it's, it's way longer than it needs to be. It does not need to be mm-hmm. two and a half hours for the plot, mm-hmm. but for the hangout purposes, it does. You, you just spend time with these characters. Um, and, and I, that made me kind of fall in love with this movie a little more. And it, it bothers me that it's somebody that I respect who said it. Cause then I'm like, am I only, do I only feel that way? <laughs> if I had heard that comment apart from, you know, to take off the name Tarantino, would I feel differently? But the fact of the matter is like the second time I watched it, I was way more into it. I was way more into the characters. Um, so it definitely had an effect on me. Well, I, I, Sam, I think you should just put it in the category of great minds thinking alike. There you go. Uh, and but I, I also yeah I, I agree that the, the film is too long uh, from a plot perspective uh, in terms of do you want to hang out with these characters do you enjoy watching their interactions so to me the film kind of ha- ha- it has the same effect in some ways that you get going back to my darling Clementine it's like oh oh okay so we're gonna have a shot at the OK Corral it's like oh so we're gonna have a final showdown with the Brits so you, you know that it's coming but it, it and it closes the film but it really doesn't climax the film right what climaxes the film is um chance and feathers getting together uh dude regaining his his confidence uh stumpy feeling like he's actually been he's been able to make a worthwhile contribution i mean those are the things that really makes the the film finally come together at the end the fact that they get the burdettes is you know you knew they were going to get them all along so that's that's kind of inconsequential well, one of the interesting things is when you get to the end of this film, if we're comparing it to the last three Westerns we watched, all of them end with one feature that this movie doesn't, which is it ends with our protagonist leaving town. <laughs> Will Kane leaves town. Wyatt Earp leaves town. Um, the characters from the Oxbow incident leave town. And this ends with everybody still there. Even Colorado's still there. And he's mm-hmm. really doesn't have a tie to that town other than this incident. So it sort of feels like, oh, I'd watch another episode of this. If if if, Haw- <laughs> if Hawks wanted to make real Bravo 2 and it was just like, and it, you know, it, I don't even care what the plot is. It's like, yeah, I would I would spend time with these people more. You well, know? Like, you know, real Bra- real Bravo 2 is El Dorado. So you can right. uh, you can check that out. <laughs> right. Um, so this film, as we said, Hawks and Wayne are doing this as a direct response to High Noon. How do you see this movie as um, responding to High Noon? Well, in, in, a number, in, in, a, in a number of different ways. I mean, um, the most obvious one, of course, is that, you know, they hated the fact that Will Kane ran all over town looking for people to help him. And so you have John T. Chance saying, basically, I don't need any help. If I get volunteers, they're just going just gonna to be shot up. So you've got an effort, at least at the beginning, to set up that direct contrast. Um, you've also got a uh, um, you've, you've got a Mexican cast 
So in a sense, in instead of Helen Ramirez, you have the folks that run the, the tellingly called, you know, Al, Al, Alamo Hotel. Uh, rather than having uh, the sheriff with a love interest at the beginning of the film, or, or, um, a wife at the beginning of the film, you actually have the love interest brought in. And so the plot moves them together rather than rather than pushing them apart. So and, and then interestingly enough, rather than having a town full of townspeople, right? It occurred to me about two thirds of the way through, nobody lives here. All, all, all we ever see are the Burdettes, um, our main characters. And then even in the hotel, after that initial poker playing scene, there's no outs, there's nobody except, except for feathers. So it's almost like they've depopulated the town. And so the only thing that's going on in this town is this standoff, um, which in a way you could say also echoes high noon. Um, so I think the other thing is that's strange about the film is it tries to be a counter high noon, but by the end of the film, it turns out that the sheriff actually does need help. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and he actually does come together with his, with his ragtag man. But it started out as an effort to say, you know, we, 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 we want to reject what we see as the politics of, of high noon. Well, and what's ironic is with the exception of, and I'm, I'm quoting Hawks here, his Quaker wife. Will Kane doesn't have any help. Like so, so, so it's weird that the story where they want to be about the person who doesn't need help, it ends up being this team effort. And the one about the person who's criticized for you know going out looking for help is actually about the person who doesn't have help, other than other than the one person who's opposed to violence. Which I yeah, I, I find that to be to be very interesting. I mean, I think the other the other difference is that, um, and I'm trying to remember if there are moments in Rio Bravo, and I don't think there is moments where uh, chance ever really doubts his responsibility or duty where, where high noon, there is this mm. internal, I mean, he actually sure. leaves once and he almost leaves again. Um, right. And th so there is, there is that sort of existential struggle maybe about kind of what is the meaning of this? What, and, and I feel like chance doesn't have, um, doesn't show us any internal struggle with that. Right, right. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's pretty sure he knows what the score is and what he need and what he needs to do. Yeah, so you know, they criticized uh, Will Kane, Gary Cooper for running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And Chance is very deliberate about not doing that. Um, I mean, he he pretty much saunters through the film, right? I mean, you uh, seriously, yeah, he, 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 I, I, you hardly ever see him running around. He's very deliberate and always kind of always in control. Uh, you wouldn't see him sweating. You wouldn't see him crying. You wouldn't see any of that emotion from him. Uh, one thing I will say about him sauntering through the film and sauntering through the town, um, which is actually what's really cool about watching this. And it's a why I'll probably end up watching it again with my uh, with my kids and my wife is that this was shot. Uh, I think I mentioned this at the end of last episode. This the exteriors were shot in old Tucson in the the, mm. the Western studio they have there. So we actually visited there in spring of 2020, right before COVID. So I have walked the streets of Rio Bravo. So it is interesting. Like you can see things where it's like, oh, I know exactly. I've been exactly where they are right there. I can yeah. I can sort of place this. Um, so that was actually a really fun thing. I'd say if anybody's ever in Tucson, Arizona, old Tucson, if you're a fan of this film, old Tucson's pretty cool to walk through because um, you get a you, you get you get to basically walk on this set, which is still kind of what it looks like. Um, so if if. Hawks and and um, Wayne saw High Noon as un-American, and they, this is their response to it. What are the competing views of America between Zinnemann and and Hawks? If we think about these things, 
Well, that's a really that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, th I think you know one one thing you could say is that um, uh, Chance puts together a a a ragtag band, right? So you've got this notion that uh, and 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 you also have this. Although this this could sound more liberal than conservative, right? You have this ragtag band kind of standing up against the Burdettes. You know, the Burdettes represent some kind of um, uh, predatory landowners. I mean, there's a there's a really interesting reference at the end when Stumpy talks about how 240 acres is enough for him, and it's not quite mm -hmm. clear what happened. You know, Stumpy had his land taken away from him, or what, what, or whatever. So I think you get this. You could say it's a very American idea of the underdog standing up against the uh, the some kind of oh, oppressive force. Um, you also obviously get a kind of, you know, cross-section of, of society. Um, you've got, you know, stump. I mean, there, there are there are kind of a mixed bag of various, as we talked about earlier, kind of, kind of various types. Um, and even I think, you know, the fact that, well, this is also true in High Noon too, though, that you have a significant business establishment run by uh, somebody from a, from a, a foreigner. Uh, you know, that the Mexicans actually have economic power. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think I think those are some of the things that are that are going on. But to be frank, I, I'm not entirely convinced that Hawks Hawks was not a political filmmaker. And I'm, I'm not really sure that Hawks knew how to make a political film. I mean, he didn't like High Noon. He wanted to make something different. But I don't think that he's made so, anything that is kind of systematically or allegorically a conservative response to High Noon. Yeah, and I think I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is High Noon is a kind of allegory for something going on. Rio Bravo is a movie, um, and 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 I think there is this sense of like, I think the Wayne character, I think Chance is a conservative character in lots and lots of ways, but I think the film actually, like you said, falls into this uh, more diverse melting pot view of America. This, like you said, these sort of underdogs against the wealthy people that you know so like um and, and even as the things that i read like it's sort of you end up getting getting a a uh i think i actually think both films provide very american views to me but if you had asked me with you know aside from anything else like which is the conservative view and which is the liberal view i might have flipped them because there is something about will kane being the like the uh, I guess there's not that's not a conservative view, but 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 they're both different aspects of uh, of America. And mm -hmm. um, one of the things I wrote in my in my notes, and I think I know your answer to this, uh, because especially in terms of art, but like if these two things are at odds with each other, does one have to choose? Of course Indeed. not. Exactly right. You don't <laughs> that's have the to great be part about art. That's the great. I mean, I that, I I mean, I love that about movies in general. But I, yeah, I love that. I love high noon. I, I'm with you on that, and I'm growing fonder of this film. And there's no reason I have to choose one over the other. Just like I don't have to choose, I don't have to choose American films over foreign films. I can uh, I can enjoy them all. But I want to go back to one more thing that what you said alludes to, Sam, and that is, and I've said this before uh, in other uh, episodes, but the old D.H. Lawrence notion that you trust the tale, not the teller. So uh, artists are not always the best interpreters of their own works. And you can set out to make one thing and you may think you've made one thing, but it may turn out to be something else. So I have no trouble saying that Hawks didn't exactly make the film he thought he wanted to make, uh, but he made a better film. Yeah. Yeah. So as we dive into this movie, um, again, I'm not super interested in the plot. I'm very interested in the character. So maybe that can take the, be the shape of our conversation. So we've already talked, we, we've sort of glanced at some of these folks, but um, if we think about uh, the character of John of John T. Chance, one of the things that interested me is he was um, 
he is both this like definite type of character. Um, but there were, there were all these little, I thought kind of interesting edges to that character and, and pieces, imperfections in him that I found really fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. You know, s- some of them come out in the, uh, the relationship with the, the feathers character. I also just need to say the names that people have. I mean, this also <laughs> has this kind of feel that like, I guess John chance, we use his name and Carlos, we use his name. Everybody else is only a nickname. It drives me crazy that feathers is just referred to as feathers. <laughs> like, I don't think she has a name anywhere. I don't think it's no. ever, it's ever, it's ever said, which is insane, but you know, that, that sort of leads to kind of this getting the band together hangout thing too, is, you know, people just have, some people have multiple nicknames, but, but they don't have names. Um, but anyhow, in his, in his relationship with feathers, I was struck by how, um, and I don't, I don't know the John Wayne type that well, but how either you could either call it romantically, sexually awkward he is or asexual he is. And I found that so interesting because, um, she's somebody who's definitely like interested in him and constantly like coming like, like like coming on to him in a kind of way and it's like he has no ability to read or deal with that through most of the movie and even at the end when it's like yeah this is it, you know there there is this this arc of them getting together but you can get to the end and be like but did they really like they kind of <laughs> did but like like he's he's a weird dude when it comes to that and i i really like that i like that he's he is so not suave and then they put him next to dean martin who <laughs> has a, a complicated romantic backstory, but at least he's somebody who has loved and lost before. And then, and then the, uh, the Colorado character seems so at ease with her, you know, that it's like, it's like you don't see him as a, he's not a romantic rival in some ways, although the ages would make more sense. Um, <laughs> but, but he is just like, Oh, he's somebody who moves through the world more easily. I I've never thought of myself as somebody who, could relate to a John Wayne character, but it's like, Oh, I'm like a socially awkward person and he's good when he's doing his job. And when he's with his friends mm-hmm. he is not good when he's around, like he, and, and, and not in a, in a, like he's a does bad things ethically or anything, but he's just doesn't know how to do it. And I loved that. So any time is with her. It's like the, you can, you can probably watch the shift the, the shift of power in the relationship. Um, I just, you know, I love that. I think it's the first extended scene they have together when, you know, he accuses her of stealing the cards. Right. Or, and, and she says, you know, you're going to have to search me. And it's like, you, you can see right away. He cannot handle that. that. That's just not, I mean, and you wonder if he's ever had a relationship, you know, with, with a woman, it really seems like may, maybe he never has. And he's, he's got, he's nice by Bato. Well, and as how he gave uh, a woman, including apologizing to her for his. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the big themes of this movie is um, the 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 great sin of the dude, or not the dude, dude. He's um, uh, his great <laughs> sin is that he he fell in love with a woman, and that that sort of destroyed him. And even when you think about when when Wheeler comes to. Uh, to chance to say like, cause Wheeler's got all these men with him and he's like, well, they could help you. And his response is, well, they've all probably got wives and families. So like, they're going to be thinking about that. I actually think his worldview is that you cannot be uh, the person that he is. You cannot be a sheriff. You cannot be a, uh, you know, 
person who sells his gun around if you're also tied to this other yeah i mean i have i have the sense that his entire experience with women is vicarious through dude and it's also yeah. negative which i found such an interesting piece but that that also points out uh, uh, get back to the previous topic uh sam that also does point out another high noon contrast right when you talked about you know, how is this a conservative film? Well, I would say the notion that the lone hero is adequate. Uh, I think that 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 comes out, you know, the, that he would look at Will Kane as, um, well, he's irresponsible because he's, he's, he's going to round up all these people just to get him shot, whereas I, I'm not going to do that. Um, so I think that the John Chance character, I, I think another reason he has trouble with uh, with feathers is he's he's fundamentally paternal. Um, he looks out for people. I mean, he is, you're right. in in the way that he's trying to protect dude, uh, trying to rehabilitate dude, he's parenting dude. When, when he and Stumpy get in that argument over, you know, Stumpy says, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be so, so hard on him. And chance is like, yeah, but if you give him encouragement, he's like between on him and he'll fall to all the pieces. So it's, it's almost like he's telling Stumpy, no, I, as a kid and I and I know how to I know how to raise my kid just like I know how to really do just like I know Colorado so when he gets feathers he's a father others he's been asked to be something than a father and he doesn't he doesn't know how to play that role he doesn't know how to how to relationship is that doesn't have him control as a paternal character rather than as an actual lover Okay, that's it's what you just said is fascinating because I wrote in my notes when I was writing about Stumpy that he's sort of the mother of the group, and the dis- the conversation you just described is a conversation between parents. <laughs> it is it is Stumpy the mother being like, "Don't be so hard on the boy," and he's like, "No, this is what we." That's really interesting because, and even the like, I mean, to the point, and you, you could overplay this to the point where he actually gives Stumpy a kiss in this movie too, right at the yes. top of his head. It's yes. like it's like that that there is. That is the that is it's not a romantic relationship, but that is the kind of mother father relationship in this movie is is uh, Stumpy and and Chance. That's really interesting to think about. It, it, it's I, I love that Sam. It's also the 1950s nuclear family because Stumpy stays home, mm-hmm. and, and, it's, and, he cooks it, it and cleans. Me, it's like it's like it's like the Donna Reed show. Honey, I'm home. You better tell him you're coming in the door. Or he'll shoot your head off. But it, it's it's the whole domestic situation of the 1950s. It's 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 perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, again, this conversation is bringing up things that, that I was sort of on the edge of trying to figure out. And, and this was really helpful. Um, I also love the conversation he has with um, with feathers about how he became a sh- when she asked, how did you become a sheriff? And he says, well, you get you get tired of selling your gun around and you end up selling it to one place. And uh, and, you know, so, so there is this this sense that they acknowledge his age there, too, that he's not playing this like ageless person he's like he's somebody who is a an aging government and then he gets asked the question uh i can't remember it might be colorado who asks him why he always carries a rifle around and his response yeah, that is. like other people are faster than him with a short gun and i my guess is when he was 25 that wasn't the case but he's like it's right. this acknowledgement of like i'm not i'm not what i used to be but here's the things that i need to do to do the job well, I think it's also why he understands Colorado, right? Because he says that uh, Colorado is good enough that he doesn't need to prove he's good enough. And I think mm-hmm. that probably comes from his own experience uh, when he was younger as well. Yeah. I also love how he um, is both. He's the character who is upholding the law, 
but you also and, and you also see him really walk the edge of the law for example he will mm. he's happy to smack somebody with that gun um he's happy to tell uh nathan burdett point blank we're gonna kill your brother <laughs> like and, and and burdett's response is well that you know some people would see that as murder and he said well if that happens we're all gonna be dead anyway so yeah it's murder but it you know so so it's an it's an interesting relationship he has with the law as well. Like he is not a um, he is a character who believes in the law and upholds it, but also but but is not somebody who's who's very um, I'm trying to think of what the word I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of. Like he he's flexible with the law in that way as well, or, or flexible with the ethics of the law in that way that I think in other characters who are are lawmen you might see them more like rigid with it where it's like no you can't do this so this is you know uh, that 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 chance has a yeah he walks that edge of the law at times well sam you know that is that is a recurring theme in all the westerns we've watched so far right that that tension between the law and and the individual will so that's obviously at work, you know, it was at work in the Oxbow incident, you know, respect for the law versus we're going to take the law into our own hands. It's present in um, uh, My Darling Clementine because, you know, Earp is the, is the arm of the law, but he's also got a personal vendetta. Uh, and that's happening in High Noon, right? We talked about that in High Noon. There's kind of irony in High Noon that you should say that if Will Kane is really respecting law, he should get out of town because he's no longer the marshal. Um, and I think you get that again here with, uh, with, with Chance. Um, and to me, that goes back to this question about how High Noon and Rio Bravo are kind of um, complementary views of, of American culture, right? Because on the one hand, you have, we, 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 we want to say that we are a society in which the, the rule of law is paramount. But at the same time, the rule of will uh, the rule of the human being taking uh, matters into his or her own hands, that's a constant tension in American culture. Um, and we see it playing out today. I mean, it, it's, and, and you could say it's the, it's the frontier spirit, you know, versus the, uh, the legal spirit that, you know, so we create the constitution, but then we also embrace manifest destiny. So, so you know, those are, those are those, that fundamental tension uh, in, in the American uh, character. And I think you see that in, in each of these lawmen as well. Absolutely. So let's move on to, uh, to my, who I think is my favorite character. And it surprised me because it's also maybe my favorite performance in the movie is, uh, is Dean Martin as dude or Bora Schoen. Um, <laughs> I, I, I got to say when he first shows up in the movie, which is in like the opening scene, I didn't recognize Dean Martin and I'm somebody who knows what Dean Martin looks like, but I just, I was like, I didn't expect him to be that character. And then, I mean, the first thing you, well, one of the first things you see him do is hit John Wayne in the head with a, with a big stick after <laughs> yes. Wayne just defended him. And I was so confused And then he yes. shows up in the yeah. next, in the next scene and saves him. Um, but, but I, I mean, again, if we're thinking of kind of archetypes, you know, this is the, this is the, the sort of version of Colorado older fallen from grace because of, I mean, because of things like addiction, right. Addiction to mm-hmm. the drink to, to, you know, he has this, this uh damaging love story you know that that's in his backstory i mean it's another interesting thing between um chance and and dude like dude has this backstory chance doesn't have much of a backstory or if he does he seems he doesn't seem haunted by things in his past chance doesn't but dude does 
um, which which I think makes him a, a, a an interesting rich uh, rich character. Um, you know, and we get to see him go through this transformation kind of back and forth. Um, you know, until until the the climactic scene when he pours the drink back in uh, back into the bottle and says, "I didn't spill a drop," and he's like. You know, as he's walking up to the brink of falling back into this addiction and then, you know, makes the choice not to or is able not to. Well, I, I, I had a slightly different response to the appearance of Dean Martin. And that is, of course, if it's Dean Martin, it's a drunk. Uh, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. And so I figured he was going to play right into that kind of Dean Martin stereotype. So what I like about the, the role is that he he's, he's a much more complex character than that. I, I also like the way the film um, kind of as you said, you're confused when he hits, when he hits chance, you don't know what their relationship is. So I like the way the film kind of slowly fills in the backstory, but I want to say something about the beginning of the film, because we haven't talked about that. I love the fact that there's no dialogue for the first five minutes. It's, it's, I started the clock running on that because I really was curious. And I just, I love the way it's almost, it's almost like, it's a Hawks homage to the silent film, which is where he, mm -hmm. he started. And so, you know, I, it, I, I just, and, and of course that gives, that gives um, dude a chance to do a lot of acting without saying anything. Uh, and Martin's very good at that. So I just love, I just love the opening that you don't get any, any dialogue until, until five minutes, until five minutes in. It is interesting how, how often directors will be drawn to something like that how long you know giving themselves a kind of limitation how long can i tell a story without saying something that there that if this is a visual medium which a director is going to probably tend to be really good at they're going to be interested in like okay can how long can i tell you a story without you noticing nobody said anything because i will say i mean i read about that being you know having no dialogue but in reality if you had asked me i would have in my head there was stuff said because because they're showing yeah. and not telling. So, yeah. so it's, it's not, um, it's not in your face that there's no dialogue. You don't notice it because it works. And I think that's really great. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a really good point. It's not as though you're sitting there thinking, why doesn't anybody say anything? Um, and then of course, I don't know if this influences spaghetti Westerns, but I'm thinking about when you get in, into, I think the good, the bad and the ugly, I think it's like 13 minutes before there's anything said. So, uh, so, you know, this kind of becomes a bit of a trope for the, uh, for, the, for the Western film. I also think it's interesting that before anything is said, there's acts of violence. Mm -hmm. So that's another way of kind of characterizing the, this, this world. Um, and it also kind of leads you to, to it, it leads you to expect that, that it has that classic element of the Western. People are going to be hitting each other. People are going to be shooting each other. Uh, that's what happens in, uh, in Westerns. Um, so just looking at the clock, wanting to move on here, thinking about, I, I love the fact that you get both, uh, both Colorado and dude, you get sort of people at different ends of the same story, <laughs> you know, that they mm -hmm. are, that, that, that you see, when you see, uh, uh, Colorado, you, you imagine, okay, this is what dude was like. And, and the fact that dude mm -hmm. gets to deal with like, am I, did, did you just upgrade by getting this guy on your side? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, 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 when Colorado finally, um, you know, it's going to be deputized, that's, that's dude's first response to it is like, okay, well you clearly don't need me. Somebody already fills that role. And here's where, again, it feels like a sports movie, right? If this is a, you know, if this is a, a team, it's like, okay, well you have this aging veteran who's dealing with some issues and then you have the new guy and it's like, well, there can only be one except really, do you only need one? You can, you can have both as it turns out.
Well, it, it also suggests that there's another arc to this film, and that is that um, that there there are many redemption stories, right? Dude's redemption, uh, maybe redemption is too strong a word for what happens to a chance, but at least a kind of a transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and even with feathers, right? It turns out she's not she's not the cheat. She's not the uh, she's not the woman of ill repute that it, that it looks like she is. Uh, and, and Colorado, in a sense, it's not redemption, but Colorado uh, wanting to be part of a group and then becoming part of a group. Um, the other thing I want to say about Dude, as long as we're focusing on him a little bit, is that uh, to me, it's a kind of a reversal of what happens in My Darling Clementine in that, uh, you know, Doc Holliday is as important in My Darling Clementine as Wyatt Earp is. But in Dar- My Darling Clementine, Doc Holliday has to die. Whereas because this film follows a comic arc, uh, as opposed to a tragic arc, uh, that means that dude is able to be restored. So that's what I also mean by Hawks is essentially comic spirit. It's not just comic in the sense of it's funny, which it is. A lot of this film is, is quite funny. Um, no, it's comic in the sense of the happy ending of uh, uh, beginning. You you begin in one in one place, you hit a low place, then you then you rise again to uh, to a new uh, stasis. And it even ends on a joke of Stumpy picking up the stockings like like that actually feels like the ending of a sitcom episode like that. Yeah. You could you could see that uh, that in there. Um, the other thing that I, I loved about the Colorado character is that, I mean, the, the arc he's on is because he is in the sort of prime of his prime of his career as an up and coming, you know, gunslinger, he his first response is to not want to get involved, you know, like. It not both both with um with chances problems but just sort of in general like he's just kind of i'm floating through i don't want to be attached to stuff and he gets drawn in and it's this interesting moment where when he, he first rejects chance's offer then when when wheeler dies and he's like okay i'm in and chance is like no you had your mm-hmm. shot you had you had your chance and he needs to um he needs he needs to act to get himself into it so the 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 set piece where um, where feathers and Colorado save chance is this moment when um, when they're both like now they have skin in the game, whether chance wants it or not. I kind of like that, that chance didn't want Colorado. But once Colorado did that, he said, well, they're going to hear about this. So you're part of this, whether you like it or not. So I guess we better deputize you. I kind of loved that. And, 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 and another opportunity not to belabor the point, but to show how the film actually uh, um, runs against its own desire to criticize High Noon, right? Because here they are rescuing Chance, and that's not, so, so, that's, not, that's not what the strong sheriff is supposed to need, and in fact, he does. And that's, of course, a great scene, the flower pot through the window, and, and, then, and then Feather's trying to recover her composure afterwards. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and, 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 and speaking of jokes, it leads to a great joke when Carlos shows up at the gunfight. <laughs> And and uh, Chance says, "Well, who else is going to come?" And Colorado says, "Maybe the lady will come with another flower pot." And it's like, <laughs> that's a really good joke. That's yeah, a good joke. And honestly, when he said that, I there was a part of me that was like, "Is she going to show up somehow?" Like, because like everybody else, every as, to your point, everybody else in the town who's not a Burdette is there besides Carlos's wife. So it's like, why not have her show up? Although that would cut against the. Um, the idea of like, uh, you know, they didn't like that, that uh, Will Kane's wife comes and saves him, you know? Right. So they, in, in to that degree, they take, uh, that's a very interesting scene when, 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 when chance gets, gets caught because mm-hmm. there's this moment where feathers is going to do, she's the one who's going to step out. And 
because Colorado is, is sort of contemplating what he's going to do and she's just going to act. And he stops her and says, no, don't get involved. But then he gives her something else to do. So she, mm. she isn't there to, uh, to pull a gun. Colorado is. Right, um, so right, they, they, right. they sort of take that away from her to a certain degree where in, in high noon, that's kind of exactly what Amy Kane does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Other thoughts on the feathers character. I think she's, she's obviously a, such a conscious response to, um, to Amy Kane that yes. she is definitely not um, from the, from the jump. You see that she is not the, the Quaker wife, that she is somebody else. And she's not yeah. interested in necessarily fully changing uh, chance. I mean, by the end of high noon, Will Kane is no longer a marshal. He throws down the badge and leaves. Um, in this, you get the sense that Chance is still going to be the sheriff of Rio Lobo. Like, like, like she is not trying to change him because she has that great line where she says, when, when, when he, uh, she says to, to him, uh, you know, you're not going to change me. Or I bet you want me to stop playing cards and stop doing this. And she says, I won't. This is what I do. And there is this sense that you get her also say, recognizing in him, this is what you do. I'm not here to make you something you're not. Well, one, one thing I will say about feathers and this uh, to go, that may go back to an earlier point. Um, she is a classic Hawks woman and um, that she challenges men. Uh, sometimes she changes men. So if we go back to one of your favorite films, bringing up baby um, and, and look what Catherine Hepburn does that goes to Cary Grant, which I realize for all, you have all kinds of objections to, but, but, but think about feathers and, uh, and, 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 the, and, and that, Catherine Hepburn character, or um, if you look at His Girl Friday and Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell or Ball of Fire and Barbara Stanwyck uh, and, and Gary Cooper, I Was a Male War at War by Ann Sheridan and, and, uh, and Cary Grant. In all those films, the, the women are, are disruptive, strong forces that the men have to respond to, to varying degrees, but ultimately they have an effect on them. So, yeah, John T. Chance isn't going to give up being a sheriff. That's not, she's not going to change him in the way that Amy has changed Will Payne, but he's going to be a very different kind of, kind of character as, mm-hmm. as a result of encountering her. Well, and she's, and she's, what she's trying to do is actively expand his character yes. beyond, you know, because he lives in a pretty small understanding of his life. And, um, and, and it, like I said, it's, it's a testament to his friendship with Dude that he himself is more damaged by the idea of love probably than dude is, <laughs> yes. you know, which is, which is, which makes that arc uh, so fascinating. Um, then the, the, the last two other characters I want to mention, because they are part of this, this team are Carlos and Consuela, mm-hmm. uh, which to your point of, you know, a comedy and a, um, and even a situation comedy, these are the downstairs neighbors, right? Like, like you have this other couple, and almost everything they do is comedic and pretty funny. Um, but you see, you see Carlos, like he shows up at the gunfight, he brings more ammo and, but also like grabs a rifle and, you know, and is, uh, is part of that. He was maybe not up to the fight in the same way. I think, you know, he has a, there's a lot of kickback to that rifle on Carlos that you don't see <laughs> when, uh, when John Wayne shoots it, but you know, but, but he's part of it. And then he has the great scene where he is also somebody who, when they're in that hotel, he's in charge of the, ho- he's the sheriff of the hotel. And there's mm-hmm. moments there, there's a great moment where 
Chance is trying to sort of tell Carlos what to do. And Carlos is like, no, no, when you're in here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who's in charge. This is my hotel. And, and he's so caring for Chance. Like mm-hmm. he is like, we need to make sure you get some sleep. Well, I'll make sure you're protected. And it's like, it is interesting because, you know, Wayne or Chance is playing that role for everybody in the town every time he's walking outside of that town. But when he walks in there, he has to uh, confront another authority. It's a loving authority, but it's another authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so as we think about, um, uh, as we're sort of running towards the end of our show here, um, one thing I do want to mention is music in this film. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, because there are, there are, are three notable pizza pieces of music in this film. One is the uh, El de Gallo, the, yes. the cutthroat song, which functions really, really well in this, yeah. um, in this, as this kind of warning. So every time it circles back, it's like, just to remind you, there is this, this, um, uh, present threat that that needs to get dealt with even when you're sort of the story feels like it's moving away from that it's like that that's there to bring you back to this reminder that this is all heading to this big thing um, and then we have the musical interlude which is the, the strangest <laughs> piece of this movie I will say the second time I watched it I, I was charmed by it the first time yeah. I thought this is really strange because the only other thing I knew about this movie besides old Tucson is I had heard people reference the song uh, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, at some point, I think Dean Martin's going to sing a song. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense in this movie. And then you get to the scene, and it feels like this doesn't make any sense in this movie other than this is the hangout part of the movie where it's like, yeah, what would you do if you were holed up in that jail for days? Yeah. And it's like, you know, and and so you get, you get this... <laughs> these two songs back to back. It's about six minutes of the movie where, where Martin sings a song and, and then Ricky Nelson joins him on guitar and then joins him in singing it. And then uh, Walter Brennan and, and, uh, and Ricky Nelson have their own, uh, ha- have their own second song. What is your thought about this particular interlude in the film? Well, there's two things to say about it. One is th- there's a long tradition of singing cowboys. I mean, that's not this particular Western genre, but there are Western genres with people like Roy Rogers you know, took took the took the time out to sing a song, so there's that. But then, there, of course, you know, there's the external factor you can't avoid. I mean, Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson were the two most pop, two of the most popular singers of the time, and Howard Hawks sort of said, you know, if I'm going to have these guys in a film, I better have them sing. Um, so yeah, I mean, would they have had the music interlude if they hadn't had those particular actors? Probably not. But isn't that the way? drama works mm-hmm. i mean you, you 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 i mean you have characters but you also have actors and you have to work with the tools those actors have so to me it, it, it's fine i think that once they cast them it was kind of predetermined i mean uh you know uh dean martin was not the first choice for that role if but if jimmy cadney had been dude he would have been capable of singing mm-hmm. as well so i you know i i don't know, uh, yeah, is, I know. is it is it organic to the film no but but how much okay how much of what happens in this film is organic to the right. film right? right because it's about it's about as we pointed out at the beginning it's about the character relationships does it does it contribute to the plot no but no, but half the film doesn't contribute to the plot i mean the plot has there's there's no reason for chance to have a relationship with feathers if this is about d- dealing with the brudettes i mean if you're just gonna if this is a film about dealing with the brudettes it only needs to be about half an hour long so I think if once you start trying to argue, you know, this doesn't belong in there, well, you could take a lot of stuff out. But yeah. that's not the kind of film it is. 
Yeah, I see it as Hawk sort of saying, relax, you're watching a movie. Yes. We got some we got some some famous stars here. Let's have them do their thing. I mean, um, to, to, to go back to uh, to Tarantino, who loves this movie, it sort of reminds me of like, um, and this is maybe a little bit more in the plot, but in Pulp Fiction, when it's like, hey, we got John Travolta. Guess what he's going to do? He's yeah, going to dance. dance. He's going to You dance. know what? That's where that's what you know that's him right. from. So it's like, you know, and, and it's like, well, if I if I have this person with this talent, wouldn't I be a fool not to not to use it? And and like I said, the second time I watched it, I got to the point where I was excited for that scene to come. It's like, oh, I can't wait till we get to the point where they like take a break and sing a few songs. Um, so I actually think I think that that was jarring the first time because I thought it was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be like diegetic music as it sort of is here they're just sitting around, or if it was just there's a dean martin song in the film and when i realized this is what was happening it threw me for a loop but the second time around i said i was waiting for it and i was excited for it um anything else you want to talk about with this film well i just want to briefly follow up on what you said about the music because maybe this is obvious but dimitri tompkin who did the music for this film of course did the music for high noon so that's one more way in which Hawks is kind of answering High Noon. But uh, Tomkin also had worked previously with Hawks on uh, Hawks' first Western, Red River. And in fact, it's the theme from Red River that is turned into the song, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me. Um, the other thing that's interesting is um, the arrangement that they play of the, of the Mexican song, the Gale, uh, that Santa Ana played at the Alamo, uh, that was rewritten by Tompkin to make it more cinematic. And then John Wayne liked it so much that he used it for his film debut as a director of the Alamo. So in the Alamo, you have the Mexicans playing an American cinematic version of that, of, of that, of that song. Um, uh, the, uh, just two other quick things that um, Hawks had worked previously with the screenwriters, Lee Brackett and Jules Firthman. Uh, Firthman wrote only angels have wings and a have and have not. And then Brackett and Firthman together wrote The Big Sleep uh, with some contributions by William Faulkner. And one of the last things that Lee Brackett did in her Hollywood screenwriting career was she wrote The Empire Strikes Back, of all things. Oh, wow. um, final thing I want to mention is that battered old hat that John Wayne has. That's the hat he's worn since Stagecoach 20 years before. Really? Yes. Yes, it is. I, I read that his belt buckle is also, I think, from Red River. That that So he just sort of collects items as he goes and... <laughs> That makes up his costumes um, to, to circle back to another name that you said earlier. I didn't get a chance to watch this, although I'm really interested in it. Um, John Carpenter. I, I've done sort of a deep dive on John Carpenter, although I haven't seen many of his movies. Howard Hawks is his favorite filmmaker. So Carpenter actually remade this movie twice. Yes, he um, did. Assault on Precinct, Thir Precinct 13, which I was going to try to watch this weekend, um, is a, 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 a modernized remake of this. And then I think ghosts of Mars is also a Mars, version yeah. of this as well. So um, I'm getting into John Carpenter as a filmmaker. So I, um, uh, I'm going to try to watch salt on precinct 13 uh, just because I want to see what is, what does his viewing Howard Hawks and doing his version of it look like. And of course he did his own version of the thing, uh, right, which, which is, is, first, is yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Quick, quick, quickly, one other thing I want to say is I really was unhappy when Wheeler got cut, shut that shut down because that's Ward Bond. And, of course, we saw Ward Bond as Wyatt Earp's brother uh, in My Darling Clementine. And in a smaller role in It's a Wonderful Life, he's Bert the Policeman. Right. Uh, great, right. One of the Hollywood great character actors. Yes. Uh, uh, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, we're going to continue and conclude, at least for uh, the time being, our Western series by going back to the theme of uh, films by, made by one of the five who came back from World War II. 
and we'll watch uh, George Stevens' Shane from 1953 with Alan Ladd as the title character. I am so excited for that. Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film um, and for this conversation. As I said, I feel like my appreciation for this film uh, increased upon rewatch, increases upon reading about it, but really in talking with you about it, I have a, a greater appreciation for this. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm probably definitely going to watch Rio Bravo again um, <laughs> sometime in the next year. And and what I, I think I will have that hangout feel of like, I'm just going to settle in for a two and yep. a half hour movie and I'm going to enjoy it. So thank you so much. Uh, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Shane in the video store.